Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yo! Welcome into the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence. Thanks so much for listening to the episode today. It's really strange, you know. No matter what you end up doing in your career, if your family members think it's cool, there's always something about what it is you do that they probably think is cooler (laughs) than what you do i'll give you a perfect example and has to do with our guest today so obviously i know mitch album from being an award-winning sports reporter and so that's usually how i think of him first and i've had the chance to actually work with him a little bit on the sports reporters podcast which i'll get to in a minute But it's so funny to me how the context of conversations changes from person to person. My parents obviously listen to my podcast. They are very supportive in that. And they know that I do these sports and they get into it. My father's watching Alabama games now. And my mom is always asking about what's going on with the Bears and all of that stuff. My parents are academics. So I have always thought that they're humoring me. Like they want me to succeed, so they're taking an interest in the things that I like. We have a lot of great conversations about teaching because, you know, they're both teachers. But when it comes to this stuff, you recognize how big the world is when you have a guest like Mitch on the show. And you recognize that not everything should be viewed through the prism of the old sports room. There has been no guest. And I mean no guest on my podcast. That my mother was more excited to hear from than Mitch Album. And look, I understand he's an award-winning writer and movie producer. But it's so weird to me. (laughs) She said to me when I was at my parents' house, and I told her that this episode was coming up. She goes, oh, wow, the author? I said, yeah. She's like, how do you know him? And I was like, he's a legendary sports guy. She had no idea. That's how interesting the world is, and it lets you know the type of reach that Mitch Album has. Here I am looking at it through the prism of, yeah, when you think about Detroit sports, you think about Mitch Album, you think about the sports reporters, you think about him revolutionizing, being a part of revolutionizing opinion people being on TV and that being profitable, which is something that we end up talking about here inside the episode. But it gives you uh, an idea of how well-known and well-liked he is. How famous he actually is. Like, that's a weird thing. Like, I've got Mitch Album's phone number. And now, like, seeing how big of a deal it is to my mom, I'm like, oh, It's just crazy. Like, it's really weird. Like, I was super excited to share this with you for a lot of reasons. One, because Mitch is actually on the podcast. And we talk about the industry and how the industry has changed. And 
you know me, like I love those types of conversations. We also get into his book, which I will talk about in a second because it's a really amazing book. But to see my mom like light up knowing that I was talking with Mitch Albin was really, really cool. So Mitch wrote a book. The book is called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. It's a novel, okay? And he sent it out to me. I was so happy to get it. I knew that I had the interview coming up, and I devoured this book. I absolutely devoured it. I was trying to get ready for the interview, but I also just found myself, because, you know, sometimes what happens is if you get a book sent to you by an author, they'll give you cliff notes. Here are some things that you could ask Mitch Album about the book. In case the person who's doing the interview can't finish the book or doesn't have time, this happens a lot. You'd be surprised of how many interviews about a book the interviewer hasn't read. It's one of the things I really respect about John Stewart and, and John Oliver and Trevor Noah. Like They try really hard to make sure that if they have an author on, that they understand the book that the author is presenting. And so I try to follow that model if I have an author on to discuss their book. Mitch has done everything when it comes to writing that you can do. Like, he has a New York Times bestseller. Tuesdays with Maury was huge. It's just huge. And so now there's this book, and it's called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. I don't know how you feel about books in this day and age. A lot of people like the visual instead of reading it. And if they do turn this into a movie or a series somewhere, I will be interested in how they make it look because it's very vividly written. I was able to put myself on the sea and on the boat. I don't want to give too much away about the book because I do want you to get it. And again, the name of the book is called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. But basically, this book is about our struggles with faith and the power of faith told in a very compelling story. And I'm, I'm telling you, you're going to get it and you're going to look and you're going to be like, Lawrence, this book is 275 pages. It is. And once you open it up, you're not going to be able to stop reading it. So I talked with Mitch about his book and the storytelling process that he had in, in putting this book together. We also talked about his career. And what it is to go from being a sports columnist to being a world-renowned novelist. To win awards, to see your words pop up on the big screen and movies and all sorts of stuff. The other thing that I think is really interesting about Mitch is the way that he loves Detroit. And I'm glad that he was so open in talking about it. What he's doing with the Say Detroit umbrella, he's one of the people in Detroit that's trying to make a difference. And as I tell him inside of here, when I was in Detroit, I actually went to one of the places that ends up being a really, really good change agent inside of Detroit. And it's through the Say Detroit umbrella. The other thing that I think is amazing about Mitch is him running an orphanage in Haiti. Do you know, like, and he tells the backstory to this, which I, I'm fascinated by. I'm fascinated by how he is driven to do good and the lengths to which he will go to try and do good. 
because it's not easy to run an orphanage. It's definitely not easy to run an orphanage in another country. And he will tell you about how all of that came to be with the Half Faith Haiti Orphanage. And if you're looking for a good place to give some of your discretionary income to, if you're like, man, I'd really like to find someone who's out here trying to do good, the Have Faith Haiti Orphanage in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Consider them as you're considering places to donate before the year is over. So we talk about the book, and we talk about broadcasting. We talk about journalism. I, I kind of needed, quite honestly, to have a conversation with someone like him to work some, th- some things through that I'm thinking about now from a work standpoint. So it was great to bend his ear a little bit and discuss how the industry changes and what changes are good and what changes are not so good. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, and I really think you're going to enjoy the book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Me and Mitch Album talking about his book, Broadcasting, Life, Haiti, Detroit, all of that. But we started off with him being kind about my appearances on the Sports Reporters podcast. Once a sports reporter, always a sports reporter. It's like the Musketeers. That's right. That is right. I There's so much I want to talk to you about when it, it, it comes to the book and everything. But first, I wanted to tell you that the first baseball trip that I took in this kind of midway or hopefully post-pandemic life was Detroit. I went to go uh-huh. see the White Sox play in Detroit. I had a wonderful time. I stayed in downtown Detroit, and I I was able to go into the water ice store. Oh, okay. And it was awesome. And I was like, I for- totally forgot that this was something that you were a big part of and that, say, Detroit was a big part of. Yeah, we created that shop, and it's just going strong, and uh, everything that we sell in there, all the money goes to our in our charitable organization, State Detroit, but the food is great. The water ice is, is top notch, and the uh, you know the soft syrup was voted the best in Michigan. And now we serve gourmet popcorn that we make, all these crazy flavors. And yeah, it's very interesting to have a retail business that does good. You know, we we're able to say, well, there's no calories in this stuff because you can't gain weight when you're doing good. You know, and so uh, a lot of people go, oh, in that case, I'll have a large. <laughs> so it works. <laughs> Well, it's just cool to see you talk about Detroit the way that I talk about the south side of Chicago. And mm-hmm. I want to know, like, where does that come from? Like, where where does that kind of civic love for Detroit come from? Well, to be honest, it came like the first day or two I got here, and that was in 1985. I come to be the sports columnist in for the Detroit Free Press. And they had written a little story about me, but I hadn't started – writing yet and i came to the office just to kind of meet people and they and they said oh you got some mail <laughs> how can i get mail i haven't written anything who did i tick off already and and uh there was a letter amongst the mail that i got from this uh older couple it seemed like and they wrote this beautiful little welcoming note and they said well we just wanted to say hello welcome to detroit we saw the story about you and we hope that you're going to enjoy it here we know you won't stay long because none of the good ones do but while you're here, we hope that you enjoy your time. And I read that. I said, wow, they're already figuring like I'm going to leave. And I haven't even started yet. And, and I found that that was true the longer I stayed here. Like there was a bit of an inferiority complex. Like, you know, people come to Detroit and then they ricochet out and go to a bigger market or something else like that. And, and I don't know. I just kind of aligned with that. I guess, I, you know, maybe something in my youth, I sort of felt like an underdog or whatever. And I, I just sort of fell in love with the place from that first letter and have, have been in love with it ever since. I love the people here. I love the attitude here. It's, 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 you know, despite everything, I mean, we take so many hits on the chin and, 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 and so many knocks on a national basis. And it's not so bad now, but certainly 20, 30 years ago, people called Detroit the armpit of America. And, uh, you know, we had Devil's Night every night, and they would send national news crews in to film the fires that started and say, see, there's Detroit still burning. And you kind of take it personally after a while, and I, I'm sure with the South Side of Chicago, same kind of thing. 
And you, you, so when opportunities came to leave, and I was offered, you know, to go to other markets and bigger places, I said, no, I, it's not any more real there. And news isn't any more real in New York or Los Angeles than it is here. And sports isn't any bigger there than it is here. And I'm going to stay here. And I've been very happy that I've stayed here. And now, and now nobody asks anymore. So I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, that's good. And that's a really good thing. I, I was blown away. Like, I had a really good time in Detroit. They had done this thing. I was It was 4th of July weekend when I went, when the White Sox played against the Tigers. And they had put together, like, an impromptu roller skating rink downtown. Right. Yep. And, and I had, like, the time of my life. Like, I, I was trying to explain to people, and I, I threw it up on Instagram and on Twitter, and I said – what people tell you about Detroit is completely wrong. And yeah. I I never felt like there was a, a, an organic like feel of joy seeing everyone excited and hanging around and having fun. That's not to say that any city doesn't have problems, but the the effort that the people of Detroit have put into Detroit to try and make it to fight against the stereotype of Detroit, I think has been magnificent. Yeah, well, it's a great city, and we have a lot of a lot of belief in ourselves. And um, you know, I, it's a kind of place where yeah, I grew up in the East, and in the East, as soon as you got out of high school, you know, you, you, you were born. You know, you went wherever the job was. You got out of college, you went where the job was. Job was in Phoenix, you went to Phoenix. Job was in Seattle, you went to Seattle. And here, I find in Michigan, uh, people, you know, maybe they go to high school here and they go to college locally, and then. They get a job offer in Florida and they have a big party and, you know, the going away party and they're going to Florida. And then six months later, you see their back and you say, well, what happened? I thought you were, took a job in Florida. Yeah, I, I miss my family. I miss my friends, you know, and they people just want to be, you know, amongst one another here. And I love that. And I feel very at home here. Does sports still carry, like, does it still do something for you at this point? You've done so much in your career. Does covering a game still matter to you the way that it used to 20 years ago? Well, if, I, if I'm if i assigned to go do something, you know, I still write for the Detroit Free Press, not very frequently, but I still do. I, I take it seriously because who am I to say, oh, I'm above this or better than this? It's, it's, it's important to the other people who are doing it there, and it should be important to me. But... I also have cut back on the way that I write about sports or cover sports dramatically from when I started, which was like five columns a week. And, you know, I was going to batting practice and, and hanging around basketball practice. And, uh, you know, no, I don't do that anymore. There's, there's um, too many things in the world that, you know, I, I'm interested in and I think may benefit from my attention a little bit more, writing about them a little bit more, spending more time. Most of my time now, Lawrence, about 60 65% of the week is just charitable work. And I have a, a, a foundation here in Detroit called Say Detroit, which started after the Super Bowl in 2006 as a very small little idea and now has grown to a, a multi-million dollar charity. And we have nine operations here in Detroit and I oversee them. And then I have an orphanage in Haiti that I operate in. And, and there's 53 kids there and I'm there every single month, sometimes for two weeks at a shot. Uh, so that eats up a lot of the time. So there's not always just to say, like, it's not the same kind of time to just go, hey, I'll go hang around Pistons practice for a while and see if there's a story. You know, but it doesn't mean that sports doesn't matter for, for when you're paying attention to it. It matters. And, and when a team is on a roll, it matters. And, and it's, especially here in Detroit, um, it can be a big source of civic pride, you know, when a team does well. And, and, I've always felt that sports is no less real than all the other news. It's no less real than politics, no less real than business. And it deserves to be covered that way. It's just my interest between the charities and the books are, are a little bit more diverse. When you were kind of tapped to do more stuff nationally, how do you think that that changed the way that sports is covered overall? Because it, it seemed like you guys in, in, the, in the sports reporters group for example, like that was the birth of what we now have are like debate shows, but it felt yeah. like what you guys were doing was a lot more genteel than the way that it's done now. Well, you're right about that. And th there were two shows. There were ours and there was a thing called the sports writers on TV out of Chicago. 
you know, this actually started right about the same time. And it was, uh, you know, writers sitting around and talking about sports. It wasn't people who were trying to make a name for themselves in television. And, and I don't say that disparagingly, but, but I do say that in that there's a different set of criteria. If you want to be long lasting on TV, you need to like be a personality. You need to be a screamer. You need to be a guy who waves his arms crazy or wears his shirt rolled up. There's got to be something visual about you and audible about you that people remember. Otherwise, you're just another face. We never worried about that because we all had other jobs. And so we weren't trying to become, you know, make our entire careers in television. We just got together on Sunday mornings for a half an hour and spoke the way that we speak to one another. And, uh, you know, we wore suits and ties. That was kind of always the tradition with Dick Schaap. And, and we just continued. And I think that kind of helped with the gentility that you're referring to. And we didn't look at it as like, I'm going to make a name for myself by putting the other person down. And now it's been kind of bastardized. You know, uh, that whole idea of uh, healthy debate has become point counterpoint. And, you know, one has to go against the other. And you wonder sometimes if they even necessarily believe the take that they're having or it's just, well, he took the positive take, so I'm going to take the negative take. So we're going to have conflict, 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 conflict. And sports reporters wasn't about conflict. We were okay with saying, yeah, you're right. You know, I agree with you. But then at other times, if you didn't, you were okay with that. But you didn't have to call the guy and ask. You know, you just, you just said, I disagree with you. And I guess that's, that was an older way of doing things. Is there a way to get back there? Is there a way to give the consumer an, an option and, and amplify what, are, what I think can be constructive, whether it's sports radio or sports television, to give them a choice for that and then hope that they make that that decision to choose what isn't so bombastic? Well, I would hope so. Uh, but it, it, it takes somebody brave and an executive, you know, to, to roll the dice on that. Because if the trend is louder, more explosive, let's find the next louder guy, the more explosive guy, then to say, no, you know what, I'm going to go the opposite direction, you're out there on an island. And if it doesn't work, you're going to get fired. And that's what people are afraid of. So they don't take chances. It's the same thing with the movie business, you know, the television business. Everybody wants what's already working. And it's the brave person who says, oh, let's try something that's different uh, that hasn't been tried or hasn't worked in a while, but it might be time for. I don't know, Lawrence. I'd love to think that, you know, gentility and, and respect can be an antidote to the, to the awful you know, screaming and, and anger and vitriol that goes on in broadcasting of all kinds, not just sports, look at politics. Uh, but something tells me that once we head down that road, it's only going to get nastier and nastier. Before we get to the book, and I do want to talk about it because I have questions, um, but I wanted to ask you about the, the, the orphanage. You brought it up a little while ago. How do you think your work in Haiti has changed you and what drew you to Haiti specifically? Well, the first question, it's changed me in every possible way. Uh, my wife and I never had kids of our own. We, we wanted to, but we got married late. It didn't happen. And uh, we became sort of uncles and aunts to our nieces and nephews. And then all of a sudden, 12 years ago, I found myself in Haiti and, uh, that's answering your other question. What drew me to Haiti? I, I wasn't drawn to Haiti. I was kind of, kind of corralled into going to Haiti uh, after the 2010 earthquake. Uh, a pastor came to me on a radio program I did and, and said that he had an orphanage down there, but he thought it had been destroyed and that all the kids had been killed because he couldn't get phone calls through and it was he was desperate. And uh, could I help him get down there? So I helped arrange a flight down there two weeks after the earthquake because I knew a senator here in Michigan who uh, was on the Armed Forces Committee. So we were able to get a slot to fly in and we flew in on a little little plane. And what I saw in Haiti after that earthquake was never leave me. I mean, it was hell on earth or people walking around without arms or legs and, you know, triage happening right in the middle of the street and everybody was covered in white dust and there were rubble, you know, mountains of rubble everywhere and, and bodies inside those mountains that you could smell the decay from the bodies and people were, you know, hand by hand trying to pull rocks out and trying to get at the bodies. And when I got to the orphanage, <clears throat> it hadn't been destroyed, but it had been overrun. And I was just so taken with the kids that uh, I, 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 I kept 
I came back and I came back again and I came back and brought people down with me who were builders and we built the first toilets, we built the first showers, we built the first kitchen and we built the school. And, and meanwhile, I was doing all this, uh, the kids were still eating one cup of rice a day. And I, I said to the pastor, I don't get it. You know, we're coming down here every, every month and kids aren't getting any better. What's going on. And he admitted to me, he didn't have any money to run it. And he was in his mid eighties. And I sort of blurted out, well, I could probably run this. I run some charities in Detroit. And he said, Oh, praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Here it is. <laughs> and that was, that was pretty much the last we saw him. And um, I've been running it ever since. So, it kind of found me, uh, but it has been profound. And we have 53 children there now, uh, all but six of whom I admitted. Uh, the, the other six are, are from the original group that was there. And uh, it's a miraculous place, despite how dangerous Haiti is. And our kids are joyous and, and, and loving, and they have no phones, no internet, no computers, no television. And so I get to see what childhood is really like when you don't have all these interferences. And it's it's a beautiful thing to witness and I'll spend the rest of my life involved there and more and more involved there. And it's the most fortunate thing that's ever happened. It's an amazing story. It, it, it really is. And it's, it's wonderful that yes, like you're there to try and help people, but it also probably helps you and it's probably helped give you a better understanding of the world at large. Right? No question. Uh, it, it also, as I get older, children, are the only thing that make any sense to me. Adults just make less and less sense. And the silliness that we do as grown-ups is crazy. But the, the faith of children and the purity of children is, is inspiring. And, you know, anybody who gets older gets weary. You know, it, it just comes with it. You get tired of silliness or stupidity, particularly in the sports or journalism world or wherever, where you can kind of go, really? You know, like, this, this is really what we're talking about now. But when you're down there, and you're taking in a child who was left under a tree to die and uh, and someone found him and took him to the police and the police said, what'd you pick him up for? Now we have to do paperwork. And, and, and the woman takes the baby and runs from the police station and runs to us and says, will you take him? Uh, you know, a, a two month old baby. Um, that's important. That's not a tempest in a teapot. That's not whether Aaron Rodgers got vaccinated or not. You know, that matters. You're saving a life. And we've had that happen multiple, multiple times with kids who were abandoned, kids whose parents were killed in earthquakes or hurricanes, uh, who were living in a hole in the ground under a piece of tin, uh, who were left in a malnutrition clinic and nobody came back for them for two years. They lived in the hallways of a malnutrition clinic. These are all profiles of some of the kids that we have. And, and so you really feel like you're doing something that matters. You know, you're changing the child's trajectory in their life. You're giving them food when they didn't have it. You're giving them shelter when they didn't have it. You're giving them love when it doesn't exist. That, that energizes you. And you don't feel like, why am I wasting my time on this? Uh, and, and so it is a gift. It's, it's really, to me, it's a gift of purpose. And I don't know what could be a greater gift than that. How big a role did the kids play in, in helping you put this book together? Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Together. Well, I wrote a lot of it down in Haiti because I spent a lot of time there during the pandemic. And uh, <laughs> when you have a computer, you know, I'm the only one with a computer, a little laptop. So I'm sitting out at a table. You're going to attract. That's like honey to a bee. You know, all the kids come swarming around. And, what are you doing, Mr. Mitch? While I'm writing. What are you writing, Mr. Mitch? While I'm writing my book. What's the name of the book, Mr. Mitch? The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Who is the stranger in the lifeboat, Mr. Mitch? I'm like, okay, why don't you guys just read it? Okay, here. So I printed it out and I gave it to them. Our kids learn English from the time that they, you know, come in, sometimes as young as you know, one year, two years old. So they're pretty good readers. And even my 10-year-olds and 11 and 12 and 13, they were all reading the manuscript. And they love books because, you know, they don't have television. They don't have radio. They don't have internet. The book is like they jump into it. And they actually gave me some pretty good ideas. You know, like they <laughs> had some criticisms and and, uh, and, and so, yeah, I said, okay, well, yeah, that's a fair question. And, uh, yeah, maybe I do need to change that. So they were great. And the Today Show, uh, last week I did the Today Show with Hoda Gopi, and they got a hold of some tape down from in Haiti, and they got the kids to review the book. So there were, like, six of them that gave these reviews. I said, oh, God, I hope one of them doesn't, like, put a thumbs down or something. But they were very, they were very kind. They were positive, and it was cute to see them, you know, talking to a camera and saying, Good job, Mr. Mitch. <laughs> so that was the best part of it. What was the inspiration for this book? Because it is, uh, it is. I was expecting it to be a very dense and deep, and I got that. But I, I'm curious on what what made you write it, because there's a lot here, Mitch. Yeah. Well, so it's the story of a uh, starts with this luxury yacht that all the rich and famous people from around the world are on on this week-long cruise, and suddenly it mysteriously explodes, and everybody's killed except 10 people, five of whom are the rich guests on the, on the ship and five of whom are the staff, like the cooks and the deckhands. And they all get into this life raft, and they're floating out in the ocean for three days, and nobody's coming for them, and they're out of food and water, and they see sharks in the ocean, and they're they're desperate for help, crying out. And suddenly they see a body bobbing up and down the waves. And they get to it and they pull it into the life raft. And it's this young guy, kind of average looking, nondescript guy. And they pepper him with questions and he doesn't say anything. And finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And it kind of takes off from there, you know, and their reactions to him and what happened days past. And they say, of course, they don't believe him. They think he's some guy who banged his head on a ship or something. And they say, well, yeah, okay, you're the Lord. What are you doing here? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? I, I came because you called me. And they say, oh, so what? You're going to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everyone in this boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And that becomes this sort of challenge as the days go on and things get more desperate and they get hit by waves and sharks and all these crazy things that happen. Uh, so are they going to believe their eyes or are they going to believe their heart? And, you know, the notion for it kind of came over the last few years with the pandemic and all the help that we've been asking for. You know, a lot of people have been asking for divine help with a job and not losing their job or not getting sick or, or someone who has COVID and please don't let them die. And, and it occurred to me that we, you know, we ask for help all the time, but we expect help to come like we order a deli sandwich yeah, like you know okay i ordered it and it's better be here in five minutes and better look like what i ordered and if it isn't we get upset but in my life i've seen that after five or ten years you look back and you say well that time i thought my prayers weren't answered actually then if that hadn't happened then this wouldn't have happened then i wouldn't have met this person who i ended up marrying and then we wouldn't have the kids and so i guess that was the best thing that could have happened to me well if it's the best thing that could have happened to you ten years from now it's the best thing that could have happened to you now. It's just that we don't see it that way. And so I set up this crazy scenario in which people have to recognize, are they, are they getting the help that they need or not? And that's the challenge of the book. Your descriptions in the book 
of the loneliness through Benji, the loneliness that everyone on the boat is feeling through his eyes and through the things that he's writing, I thought was uh, amazing. I, I, I was, I felt like I was there with them working through that. And there's, there can be a lot of symbolism with, especially since you wrote it during the pandemic on how all of us probably feel a little bit detached from right. everything and and the boat can symbolize that and them being out on the ocean with there being no hope could symbolize that i i was really drawn to that aspect of the book and and how you crafted it thank you well you're right you know everybody's lonely and everybody's calling out for help and uh i try to put like i'm sure lawrence if if, if i disappeared from your podcast mysteriously suddenly and a new voice came on and said, I'm sorry, Mitch is indisposed, but this is the Lord, Lawrence, and I'm going to give you 60 seconds, and you can ask me any question you want. I'm sure you would come up with some pretty good questions very quickly. And I tried to come up with those questions and put them in the mouths of the passengers in this desperate situation when, you know, they're running out of food and they're hungry, they're, the sun is baking them, and there are sharks coming after their boat. That's when it gets real, you know, that's when you're not. You're not asking for, um, you know, the lottery number to come through for you. You're asking to stay alive. And they pose questions to him that we would ask if we had that opportunity. Like, do you answer prayers? And he says, well, I answer all prayers, but sometimes the answer is no, which is something I have come, a philosophy that I come to believe in. Or there's a moment where one of the passengers in the middle of the night um, takes his own life. He throws himself overboard because he, he wants to be with his departed wife. And he, he just thinks that that's the best thing. And in the morning when they wake up and they see he's gone, everybody gets mad at this Lord character as if he was supposed to do something about it. And one of the passengers says, if you were really God, you would have stopped him. And he says, God starts things, man stops them. And again, if you really think about that, you know, we've been given everything on this earth to create a perfect world. If we want it, we have enough food and resources to feed every hungry person. We have enough intelligence to cure every disease. Look at what we did with the vaccine in one year. If we focus like that on, on cancer and put all our efforts into it, we'd have it wiped out, but we don't, we choose more selfish things. We choose to make more money and we're the ones who invent guns. We're the ones who invent bombs and war. We're the ones who invent cigarettes and alcohol and, and, and all the things that stop life and stop progress. And yet we blame God when bad things happen. And so I thought that that was appropriate, you know, or, or, you know, other questions about why do people die and things like that. And, and at some point or another, all these things get posed and they, based on his answers, they try to determine, is this guy for real or is he just some kook? And by the way, I'm not saying that he is or isn't, you know, if you've read the book, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns in it. And, you know, I'm not, saying a lot of people say oh okay this guy must he must have long hair and a beard and he must have an interesting birth story involving a manger you know i said no he's not jesus he's just some some guy you know he looks like a surfer you know he's nothing special and you know it's up to you to decide whether you think he's for real or not is it hard writing dialogue for god <laughs> well i joke around that you know as you write it, you keep looking up to see, you know, like, just okay. It's okay. Uh, I don't want a lightning bolt to come blow up my computer, you know. Uh, but I, I try to write less as God than as the people asking the questions. The wisdom that comes out of this guy's mouth is not me. It's based on things that I have learned from people like Maury from Tuesdays with Maury or like the clergy people that I spent years with in the book I wrote called Have a Little Faith. And it's, it's a combination of, of, of that wisdom and my own life's wisdom that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a kid anymore. And I have had a lot of things happen um, that I've had to have a philosophical bent on, not the least of which is, you know, I, uh, my wife and I adopted one of our children from Haiti when she developed a brain tumor at age five and we brought her to America uh, and she never went home and she lived with us for the next two years as we traveled around the world trying to find a cure for her. And they were an amazing two years. I mean, loving and wonderful and funny. And since my wife and I had never had children of our own, um, 
it was such a blessing. Suddenly we had a five-year-old sleeping at the foot of our bed, even though we were in our mid fifties, you know? And, but when she died, you know, I was broken. I mean, so was my wife. I mean, I, I just couldn't accept that there was anything in the universe good, uh, you know, and, and there couldn't be a God because what happened to be a God who was kind, that wasn't kind to a seven-year-old. And as time has passed, and now it's been four and a half years, um, I've had to sort of adopt a better attitude and because and, 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 you can't stay in that anger forever. And it, that is sort of summed up in a moment where one of the characters on the boat um, approaches, you know, confronts this God character screaming at him saying, why did you take my wife? Why did my wife have to die? Why did you take my wife? And the response is, well, when people die on earth, we always say, why did God take them? But maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us? Why, what did we do to deserve their sweetness, their humor, their love, you know, their, their amazing moments that we have with them? And this character says, I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you, they're not crying. And for me, that was written as much for me as it was for anybody else, you know, because that's the philosophy I've had to take that our little girl, Chica, she's not here and we cry for her not being here, but she's not crying anymore. And in point of fact, we didn't lose a child. We were given one. You know, we had two amazing years with her that we wouldn't have had otherwise. We didn't end up going down to Haiti and getting involved in orphanage and all that. So if you look at it as, as a gift, as, as opposed to a loss, it's healing. And uh, maybe, you know, Stranger in a Life book can be healing to other people as well, if that's what they're dealing with. I was really struck by your depiction of heaven. And I, I don't want to give away too much, but I I was sitting there going, wow, like, what a what a beautiful way to really think about what afterlife is like and all the things that if you believe in an afterlife what you might be treated to in an mm. afterlife yeah I, I I don't really want to give away right. what it is like you said but but there's a moment where to try to heal Benji who's kind of the essential character who's writing in the notebook about what happened here, um, the Lord character gives him a little glimpse of heaven, you know, opens up the skies up in the middle of the ocean. And I had in my mind, you know, this visual of, okay, you're on a life raft. The sky never looks as big as it does when you're out in the middle of the ocean. I mean, you know, it's just all around you. And you're there, and there's maybe there's a moon, and there's other gazillion stars, and suddenly all of that disappears like a curtain being pulled back and you can actually take a look into heaven and he gets this opportunity and it, it heals him, you know, it, 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 and, and, uh, and the person reading the notebook a year later who finds it when this life raft washes up on shore empty and there's nobody in it, but there's a notebook hidden in the pouch. He also is affected by reading it. And, and that way, you know, a story, one story affects somebody else's story as a book affects somebody else's life. And as you know, the stories that I have encountered from other people have affected my story. And so that's why I, I kind of did it that way. And I don't want to say any more because right. like I say it kind of takes away from it, but, but thank you for recognizing that moment in the book. Well, Mitch, this was a, a real treat, man. I I've loved your work for a long time. I've told you that before. I, I devoured this book. Like I did it in two sittings. I I, I, I tried to, to get it done before the game started on Sunday and I couldn't. And then I came home from doing my show and, and knocked out the rest of it. And I was absolutely blown away. The name of the book is the stranger in the lifeboat. And you need to pick it up because I think that no matter where you are on your spectrum of faith, and this is something that I struggle with, I think that there are things that you can take away from it and, and gain from it. And, and to me, like, that's the, that's the highest compliment that I can give it, that there is something in it for anyone wherever they are on their, their journey of faith. Well, thank you, Lawrence. That's really kind. And uh, thank you for reading it. You know, not everybody who, who hosts a program does. And uh, it certainly makes the conversation better. 
And I, I really appreciate the kind words and, and the generosity of your time. And uh, come on back and join us on the Sports Supporters sometime. You know, we're, we're still doing it twice a week, and uh, we'd love to have you back in the circle. Well, I, I appreciate that wholeheartedly. And, and thanks for this book and continued success with what you're doing in Haiti. And I am a fan and a supporter of what you're doing in Detroit. I try to sing its praises whenever I can. I try to tell people, hey, Bears-Lions game, you should go up to Detroit. Have yourself a good time. You should go yeah. go and watch the White Sox play in Detroit. And I actually think Detroit's going to be pretty good in a couple of years because they hired the right manager. But um... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for now, and for now, anybody who comes from Chicago for any of pretty much any of our teams can not only have a great time in Detroit, but they have a pretty good chance of going home happy uh, because our teams are really down right now. So another reason to visit Detroit if you're a Chicagoan because uh, you'll probably get to see your hometown win. Mitch, if you ever need anything from me, feel free to reach out. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Great to talk to you. Be well. So, yeah, the whole thing's amazing. His whole life, his whole career, I love hearing him talk about Detroit. And I made mention of it inside the interview. He talks about Detroit the way I talk about Chicago. And I like that he he has, we can use the word privilege. He has the word privilege. He has privilege to not be in Detroit if he doesn't want to be. He can do what he does from wherever it is that he is. But he made a conscious choice to want to stay and help in Detroit and want to stay and help in Haiti. And I think those are all things that should be applauded and modeled to be quite honest with you. Those are things to be modeled. I love what he said, too, about where we're going as far as sports journalism goes and what are the pitfalls of the relationships that entities have with leagues and teams. And these are all things that I talk about occasionally on the show where I worry about whether or not we are going to be able to talk in real critical terms about things that we care about in the next five to ten years. The the mission creep of independent, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, independent media I think is really, really dangerous. And this book... He he I think that he did a he did such a great job of like walking the line of explaining what the book was about without giving away too much. But as I said in the intro, I'm not a very fast reader. I'm I'm someone who likes to I'm big on reading comprehension. Like even when I was a little kid, like that was what the report said about me. I read slow but I understood everything that I read. And I read this in one day. And I think that you probably could too. I mean, I know people who can read a lot faster than I can. And I think that you will enjoy this and read it in one day. Wherever you get your books, I'm a big proponent of help your local bookstore if you can. If if you can't, because I, I imagine that this book is everywhere. Like, this is not just... This is not niche. Like, this is Mitch album. So, The Stranger in the Lifeboat is probably in a bunch of different places. So, go to your local bookstore and support them. Or go to the local bookstore and say, hey, do you have the book? Because I would like the book. And go check it out. But I also think that when you, when you hear Mitch talk about these callings that he has and the way that he clearly worked through some of the pain of losing his daughter through writing this book, I find it to be very encouraging. Times are hard right now on so many levels. I talk about the hope bucket a lot. The hope bucket, it doesn't take a ton to refill a hope bucket. Most of us are predisposed to wanting to be positive. Nikki Giovanni is one of my favorite authors. Honestly, one of my favorite people. 
And she talks about that. She talks a lot about hope. She talks about optimism. Optimism as rebellion. She talks about it a lot. And I love that. It's been something that I've held as kind of a life motto. Optimism is a form of rebellion. I I saw her say that at a poetry reading in Chicago, and I've never forgotten it. And I think that if you add the faith element to it, and that's what, what Mitch is writing about in this book, I think that whatever level of faith that you're at, I struggle with it. I struggle with, like the people in the book, you'll see. I don't want to give it away, but I, I saw a lot of myself in characters in the book because of their struggles with faith. But I walked away being wowed by this book and its myriad messages that it has. So I highly recommend it, and I really hope that you enjoyed the conversation that I had with Mitch. I know that I did. It was a lot of fun, and I'm glad that he had time. And hopefully, hopefully I'll, I'll get an opportunity to, like I feel like that's someone that I should probably talk to more. Hopefully I'll get an opportunity to do that and bounce some questions about all sorts of things off of him, you know, when he has time. You know, when he's not writing award-winning books or running an orphanage in Haiti or doing his best to try and help out in Detroit. You know, when he's not that busy. (laughs) I thank you so much for listening to this interview and this episode. We got some great episodes coming up. I'm I'm kind of on a roll. I'm feeling great about some of the choices I've made in who to talk to lately. And I think that you're going to benefit from listening to them. Make sure you check out the Sports Adjacent Podcast. Those guys are hilarious, man. They're so funny. New episodes of that come out Wednesday nights, Thursday morning. So make sure you check it out and support them. Please subscribe. If you're new to this episode... Subscribe and look through the catalog. We get a lot of great guests on House of L, and we keep growing, and we thank you. We had another 70,000 download month, which is phenomenal. Thanks again for your support. I will talk to you next time. Peace.